The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to Spirit Matters, where we explore matters of the spirit with leading experts from across the spiritual spectrum, all designed to enrich and enlarge your wisdom, deepen your joy and peace, and awaken your inner connection to the divine. Here's your host, Philip Goldberg. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Spirit Matters. For those of you uh, tuning in for the first time, uh, You may be familiar with the previous incarnation of Spirit Matters, which I co-hosted with Dennis Ramundi for seven years. Uh, That iteration stopped a while ago, and I continued on my own here on mindbodyspirit.fm. And I would encourage you to go to the archive of the old show at um, spiritmatterstalk.com. And uh, subscribe to the new show and avail yourself of the previous interviews, of which I think there are now eight or 10 or 12. Um, And we continue with the tradition of interviewing interesting people from a broad range of spiritual, with a broad range of spiritual expertise and Today is no exception. Uh, I want to, uh, by way of a disclaimer, our guest today is an old friend of mine, but that will not stop me from asking rude and impertinent questions. (laughs) Rachel Harris is a psychologist who's been in private practice for 40 years. She also spent 10 years in an academic research department and published more than 40 peer-reviewed studies and and received the National Institutes of Health New Investigators Award. She's no longer a new investigator. I won't call her an old investigator, but um, she's been investigating for a long time and in recent years has turned her attention to the use of entheogens what we usually are used to calling psychedelics in the uh, spiritual and therapeutic context. She's written about that in her book, Listening to Ayahuasca, and now in a new book, Swimming in the Sacred Wisdom from the Psychedelic Underground. Welcome, Rachel. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Phil. I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, Before we get into your current book, let's back up a little bit and fill in our listeners on your own spiritual history, this being a spiritual show. Um, What were your early spiritual influences, affiliations, and so forth? Well, I think the most important response to that is I had spontaneous uh, experiences as a child and young adult. And I began searching for, uh, in, in reading, ways to explain that. And so I read 
some of, uh, I think I found Alan Watts when I was still a high school student, right? You know, this is, somebody said, you know, he was used to searching out the the used bookstores and to go to the very bottom shelf and, you know, sit on the floor in the bookstore and go through these books that were kind of just on one or two shelves. And so I was looking for information that would help me understand what I was experiencing. And like many other people, I never told anyone about these experiences. Mm. I never asked anyone. In fact, I really could have asked my mother. She would have understood it, um, but she wouldn't have known anything about them, She, but she would have understood it. And, mm. uh, you know, there was one really interesting experience I had where I had this, this visceral aha moment in um, a high school algebra three class, my senior year, <laughs> right? You're the least likely place. And I sort of grasped something. I, you know, that how a formula described a physical corner in the, in the classroom. It, you know, I, I really wouldn't understand it now, but at age 17, I did. And I had this sort of aha experience. And this was the first time the teacher saw me have it. So I had like an outside confirmation. We didn't talk, but he saw me get it. And um, it wasn't just an understanding. It was a real opening experience. And he saw it and he he confirmed it in a silent kind of exchange, which was fascinating to me because it's the very first time I experienced an outer confirmation of an inner state. But did it have to do with... Mm the uh a lot mathematicians often talk about the the link between um mathematical insights in the mind and sort of harmony in the universe and orderliness did it have anything to do with the math or was it something totally independent? no it was exactly it exactly had to do with the math but uh-huh. i'm not at that level of mathematics uh-huh physics so for me it was just a you know a, an algebraic formula that all of a sudden made sense to me that it was describing uh something physical uh and but it was that same experience that i'd had in other times uh that there's uh there's a shift that happens inside and that word shift is a word that's used often to describe a yeah. a shift in uh, consciousness and altered state, shifting realities. It's kind of the best word we have to kind of change channels, you know, if you will. Yeah. And but what was so wonderful about this experience was that the teacher saw it in me. Now, it unfortunately led to a decision to try to major in mathematics in college. <laughs> How long did that last? <laughs> well, that lasted two very painful semesters. <laughs> And then I changed to psychology, and that's the story of the rest of my life. <laughs> I get it. Um, but, um, you know, I really appreciate that you ask about early experiences and influences, because in writing this book, I spent, you know, this is a book about women. I decided early on only to interview women. And the women, the criteria for interviewing was women who had worked underground with entheogens, you know, guiding other people, being present for other people's journeys for at least 20 years. And many of them had worked 30 and 40 years. So, you know, in the midst of this psychedelic renaissance where people are doing internet trainings for one year and maybe a weekend, Ah. maybe one journey, these are women who worked with psychedelics for years and years on themselves before they even began sitting for other people. They served long-term apprentices with more experienced people. Some of the the um, leading people from the 60s, they, they apprenticed with. And so they had supervision for many years as well and guidance and feedback. And this is not like, you know, the immediate training that we've got going on now because we need so many psychedelic therapists. So these women, I dare say, in the Western world, know more about the experiential use of these medicines than anybody else. And they're doubly silenced. They're silenced as women, and they're silenced because they continue to practice illegally. Let's back up a second, Rachel, because mm-hmm. you, you've already alluded to some of the questions I have. But the book, 
um, swimming in sacred wisdom from the psychedelic underground um, is based on your interviews with women who have been and continue to guide people in uh what do we call it? Psychedelic journeys, yes, um, exactly. experiences. Um, so let's back up a second. What got you interested in this? And how did you learn about these underground women? <clears throat> well, in fact, they had a, a strict vow of silence. They'd never talked to anyone before. Do they but, talk among themselves? Yes. But they had read the uh, ayahuasca book, listening to ayahuasca. So they knew me through the book. Uh-huh. And then they saw me at conferences and I made contact and one thing led to another. Let's so they say, revealed themselves to yes, you. And yes. that's how you discovered their existence. And they trusted me because I think of the other book. And I shared some of the same background with, you know, I had this one. <clears throat> well, you know, one person was key in opening up to other people. And then I had three different referrals to the eldest of the elders, I call her. When I interviewed her, she was 86. So she went way back. And um, three people referred me to her. And I wrote her a cold email, you know, just out of the blue. And she called someone in California to check on me. And the woman she called was one of the women referring me to people. <laughs> so uh -huh. I got a good referral. And then, you know, we tried to make arrangements and I was willing to travel wherever she was. And she said, well, I, I only have this one week um, where I'm available, but I'm in California. And she happened to be in California an hour away from where I was in California. Right. So that worked out perfectly. No, I'm not finished. I drive. <laughs> I, I, I get out of my car. She's waiting in the garden to meet me. We look at each other and we recognized each other. Wow. From Esalen 60, well, um, oh God, 60 years, 50 years ago. I didn't really know her there, but I I'd seen her around a lot. She had been in a, a, a training program with Fritz Perls. And I was living at Esalen as staff. And so I recognized her. We knew lots of people together, but it was this moment of recognition. So I had some of the same background that these women had. Yeah. A different path. But that same uh, 60s influence. And uh, yes. Um, so, but why, why did you consider it an important enough subject or an, and an interesting enough subject to want to, uh, then follow up and make it, you know, a lot more than uh, casual encounters with interesting people. I mean, taking on a, a series of interviews and writing a book, as I know very well, is is yeah. a very is a major uh, investment of time and energy. Why did you consider it important enough to do? Well, as, as I said before, they know more about working with these medicines than anybody else, other than the indigenous people who work with them in, in a whole different way. So from a Western point of view, they know a lot more. And that's in contrast to the research teams who are studying the medicines in a way that's very important, but in a very limited way and targeted in uh, it's a medical way for symptom reduction. Mm -hmm. That's not what these women do. Right. And, and I have to admit, when I started um, interviewing them, <clears throat> I thought they would be psychedelic therapists. They're really not therapists at all. They're really priestesses. Mm. And this is, a you know, we don't really have a role in our culture for for this kind of practice. And one of the women said, even if these medicines become legal, I would continue to work underground because that's the sacred container. In other words, if it becomes legal, there may be restrictions on doing it the way they do it. It wouldn't be held in the same way. Uh-huh. Yeah. Now, just for the sake of viewers or listeners, rather, who, who are not uh, up to date on this, um, 
you've alluded to uh, the research that's going on. Um, we all know that psychedelics were off the, off the market and out of the laboratories for several decades after... 40. 40 yeah, years. 40 years after the... Uh, they went from the lab to the streets in a big way in the 60s and 70s. But then in recent years, there's started to be a legitimate research at reputable institutions uh, by uh, medical peoples and psychology uh, people, and I suppose neurobiological uh, yes. experts, um, where there's systematic research on the potential benefits of uh, entheogens or, or psychedelics. What you seem to be saying is that the protocols that are being used or the, the framework that gets the funding probably is, is, is uh, medically oriented or therapeutically oriented. What can these things cure? Yeah, as exactly. A, as opposed to what can they do for the uh, evolution of an individual's uh, consciousness or uh, yes. spiritual development. Is that is that? That's correct. Okay. Yes, exactly. So and we, there, go ahead. So there are now psychedelic institutes opening up in in major universities. I mean, Hopkins has been doing work for tw almost twenty years now. Harvard has a an institute, Berkeley. I mean, they're just all, all over the place. Yeah, NYU is has re really focused on psilocybin with uh, uh, terminal cancer patients, and and so so these research studies have focused on very sympathetic populations to start. So they've started with um, uh, PTSD mm -hmm. treatment resistant PT. So these are uh, often. Uh, veterans who have suffered for decades with trauma and uh and they they they've been no no medication has worked for them they've been treatment resistant so nothing's helped them and and in three months a couple of journeys and a, a couple of you know maybe two or three therapy sessions before and after they their symptoms are so reduced they don't even qualify for the diagnosis of PTSD. Now that's such that's such a miracle. The FDA has said this is a breakthrough medicine. We have to move it quickly through the approval process. And then the same thing at NYU where they're looking at terminal cancer patients and who doesn't have empathy and compassion for people dealing with their own mortality. And so there they treated um, what they called demoralization, you know, the people who are not handling their confrontation with the end of their life. They're not handling it very well. They're suffering. They're in pain. They don't want to see their loved ones. And with one or two sessions, again, they're able to live in the time that they have left and and connect with their loved ones and their pain is reduced. I mean, it's so who doesn't want to support this kind of research study? And it's specific to specific diagnoses and symptoms, and it's very time limited because the studies also have to look at um, cost-efficient approaches. Right. So it's it's minimum. Whereas the women working underground have worked with these medicines for years, they have seen people um, often regularly throughout huh. their lives. Right. I mean. The way people use these medicines in real life, not in a research study, is they might come in for a journey once a year. They might bring a spouse. I've sat in ceremonies, you know, I've been using ayahuasca for 15 years or so. I've sat in ceremonies where it's two or three generations of a family. Huh. It's really a lovely experience. To, it's, it's re it really feels like a privilege to just be in the room with them during a ceremony. It's just very lovely. That's fascinating. Um, and the women in question, are they all in the Bay Area, by the way? No, no, but they think they are. So <laughs> what does that mean? That means they think I've interviewed mostly in California. And I say, ah. to them, well, do you know anyone in Maryland? I and see. they say, where's Maryland? <laughs> you know, they're very <laughs> California oriented. No, it's, I've been all over the, the continental and Hawaii. 
and included some Native Americans in Arizona. So, and one African American woman. It's so there are fifteen altogether. And then I interviewed a half dozen other people who didn't quite qualify in the twenty years of experience, but they were relevant for other reasons. And these all are women who, uh, for some reason or another, are drawn to do this kind of thing, um, and were mentored or apprenticed yes. with experienced peoples. Is the training, would you consider it rigorous? Would you consider it adequate? Their experience was incredible, and it took an average of six years or so. So yes, this was really quite in-depth training. And they all reported different kinds of training and experience and worked with a whole array of different people. Um, there's a classic book called The Secret Chief. Um, and uh, one of the one of the women, a couple of the women knew him and worked with him. So, you know, th these women are part of history. <coughs> And I, I mean, my real position is I don't want them forgotten. I, mm. I want to preserve their perspectives because it's, it's, it, it, our culture doesn't hold this sacred perspective very easily. There, we, we don't have a real role for them. What, uh, in your interviews, um, what emerged as commonalities in the uh, experiences that the women uh reported. You know, one of the things that's very interesting is these women tended to be able to shift states of consciousness easily. And they often reported interesting dreams from childhood. Um, and uh, so they're very, they're very permeable to other worlds, other energies. And uh, they have unusual spontaneous experiences without the medicines, you know, when they're just straight. So uh, they were drawn, you know, they were sort of perfectly suited for this kind of work. Mm. And they were called to it because they worked on their own healing for years. And then they felt these medicines have helped me so much. I'd like to share them and help other people. And that's how they came to the underground work. And, I'm curious about the commonalities. I assume you spoke to them about what their clients, do we call them clients? Um, the people who come to them yeah. to, to, as guide. To, yeah, to guide you see, we have, we have trouble finding the correct words well, for these well, relationships. Yeah. They must have words for it. If, you know, they say my, my whatevers. Um, what, do they talk about the experience the experiences that the people they guide have had, and what are the commonalities there? Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You know, I'm I'm not sure I can answer that exactly because it, it, you got to figure if they've been practicing for 30 or 40 years, it's such a broad range of experiences. Yeah. But I can give you some specific examples. And this is from um, Anne Shulgin. And I can use her real name because uh, she's well known in the psychedelic world uh, because her husband synthesized MDMA. Sasha mm. Shulkin. So these are famous people in that world. 
And she also has basically said she didn't work underground. Um, but before MDMA ecstasy became illegal, she worked with it quite a lot. And she had one of her rules in a part of the contract in working with someone is she said to them, during the journey, you may see a death door. You may not go through that death door because that would harm you and it would harm me. And so that was part of a contract that she had people read and agree to. And so this is a typical uh, having an experience where you feel like you're dying or where you see an option to die can often come up with any of the entheogens. And so there are some experiences like that that are common enough that she didn't want any um, mortal accidents on, in, on her hands. It would harm her. Um, you know, now what's interesting because of all the hype about psychedelics and some of it uh, based on the research, especially from Hopkins, where they've talked about um, psilocybin occasioning a mystical experience and they've kind of um, been say, or it's been reported that the mystical experience is the healing is what's the healing variable is now the women say people call them to make an appointment to come in for a journey. And they, they say, you know, I want to have a mystical experience. Uh -huh. well, it's a little difficult to schedule that, you know, at the right time <laughs> and place. You know, yes. we don't, and Put so, in your in your calendar, grace. Yes, yes. Mystical experience this yes. Saturday night. So the women aren't too happy about that. So that, that's been a shift in the culture that's a little challenging for them to deal with and to talk about. It, there's no way to predict what's going to happen. But there are moments in many, many journeys where the person has to um, surrender, is the term. And that may or may not lead to an ego disillusion, a, a mystical union with everything, but it can be a, a challenging moment. It can be frightening. And so there's this is one of those things that that they talk with the person before to prepare them in that moment, I will be with you and you can go with it. You can trust the process is the key word. So these are some of the common themes that happen. The title of your book is swimming in the sacred. So that suggests there's a sacred dimension to what these women are doing. Uh, do they, uh, do they view what they do as something sacred? Do they frame the what we used to call the set and setting uh, in a, in a sacred way? Is yeah. it held in as as a uh, uh, spiritual experience that people are going to be having, or at least in a spiritual context, as opposed to uh, a a uh, therapeutic one simply or any of that why where does the sacred come in you know in that the phrase itself comes from maria sabina she uh, was the um, mexican corandera that was written about in the mid-50s and uh, then you know so many westerners went to try the magic mushrooms that she worked with that she had to move she said <laughs> i mean she was inundated with Westerners, and she was not happy about that. And she said the the little saints, the magic mushrooms, would no longer work because uh -huh. she was overrun. Hmm. Um, but she sang, she would sing a song, and this is, these are her words, I am a woman who swims in the sacred. And that's where the title is from. And yes, these women absolutely uh, work in a sacred setting. And they don't see this as a psycho psychological process at all. Mm -hmm. If somebody has big psychological questions after a ceremony, they will refer them to a sympathetic a psychotherapist, someone who yeah. understands the territory. But these women are really working with a transformation process that is not the same as psychotherapy. And it's a real spiritual unfolding and sometimes a, a spiritual leap that happens, and they're looking for a real transformation in the person's life. As a therapist who practiced for 35, 40 years, 
you know, I I would be looking for their life going better, you know, so mm-hmm. that they're yeah. not so yeah. anxious, they're not so angry, they're not so hard on themselves. No, these women wanted to see a, a real transformation in, in their life. What surprised you the most in your uh, conversations with the women, if anything? Oh, yeah. You know what totally surprised me was... Um, that I got, a, <laughs> that just in conversations with no medicines evo- involved at all, just talking to someone, making, you know, a lot of notes, listening carefully. Then hours later, you know, I like w- one day it was, I got there at 10, I left at four. And when I got up to leave, <laughs> I was disoriented. I mean, I, I found the door, but you know, they, they, I, I was with a woman and one of her, um, students. And, uh, they said when I got to the door and I turned around to say goodbye, they said, you, you look like you'd seen a ghost. You were pale. And, and I knew I couldn't drive home. I was so ungrounded. So there was sort of a contact high that I picked up just talking about these other realms. So, you know, what my cure was. I went to a gas station and bought some peanut M and M's. That'll bring you down. <laughs> and that brought me right down. <laughs> I got the protein. I got the sugar. <laughs> oh, you know. And then I went home and I called a mutual friend of ours named Carol, and she kind of, you know, she talked to me and kind of helped ground me because the peanut M and M's only went so far. <laughs> well, but the. the- it's good that you got the peanuts because then you have the the protein source, the protein, <laughs> as opposed to the, the so other. So I and so I. This is what surprised me that it would that I would get overwhelmed. I would lose yeah. my own sense of of you know. I just get a little shaky. I'd lose my own grounding. Yeah. I, is there any? Were there any? Uh, Oh, no, before I ask you that, you've mentioned, you use the term medicines. Are there, among these underground women, are there uh, sort of standard uh, sources so that the sources of getting the, the drugs are, are reliable and safe? And are there standard dosages and all that like they have in the research protocols? Well, you know, they because they're so well connected, they get very good quality medicines. So that's that's one answer. To and that. which medicines? Well, they use they have themselves used everything at all dosage levels, which is not something I would do. They no I, for themselves, I mean, but what for about themselves. for the for the? So you know, this is a this is an art, not a science. Hmm. So at one point, interviewing a woman and and the and the protocol underground is the same as the protocol in the research studies Uh that is with earphones on with music and eye shades and lying down under a blanket Uh having someone always present with you and um as i'm interviewing them this is at the very beginning i realized oh wait a minute i've never done it this way Uh (laughs) i took entheogens in the late 60s in big sur you know, I was out in nature, I had spiritual experiences, and I did it in a ceremonial approach. But I was not in that kind of protocol. And I'm writing about something I've not experienced. So I immediately arranged to do a journey. And, um, and, and my guide gave me the same dose of MDMA that they're using in the, uh, in the in the studies for PTSD. And, you know, after 15 years of ayahuasca ceremonies, which are frankly no fun, you know, Mm. they're challenging, they're difficult, um, unpleasant. (laughs) Um, I thought, well, MDMA, it's ecstasy. This should be fun. You know, it's a heart opening. It's wonderful. Well, I had a miserable time. (laughs) (laughs) And it's because she gave me too high a dose, even though it was a standard dose. But I don't need that big a dose. And one of the ways, as we get more nuanced about what kind of how to dose people, 
if somebody's very good at shifting realities, shifting realms, if they're very fluid, um, they don't need as big a dose. And there's actually a, um, a psychological scale that measures this ver- personality variable. Huh. And it's called the absorption scale. And it measures just how quickly, well, it actually was a measure to, to, to see how easily you could be hypnotized. So how easily you can shift a state of consciousness, how suggestible you are. And so in my experiences, I have often been overdosed because I need a much smaller dose. And I think, I think we all have to kind of learn uh, about this. And so you were given MDMA or you chose it? We talked about it together. And okay, we, so we there's a, there are together. choices. So some people oh, might... Sure might choose psilocybin or yes LS. okay um yes. the other question is um and you alluded to it you said you had a miserable experience do um are there well, i should say challenging okay. is the challenging correct, the politically correct term <laughs> okay um and i assume the women uh doing this work are trained to to handle that but are have did they also discuss were there occasions when something uh goes beyond unpleasant or challenging but can be dangerous are there uh safeguards are there uh possibilities of people re- having bad reactions uh, that can carry over and uh, might, you know, constitute some kind of uh, danger. Well, they, these women are very well connected, and they they have good working relationships with medical doctors. And one woman did tell me of an emergency where she had to take her client in the middle of a journey to the ER. Mm-hmm. And she said, I was just lucky that the ER doctor was very sympathetic. Ah. So yes, that was yeah. just luck. And she had to be willing to do that because she was She could have been arrested. She could have been arrested. And of yeah. course, so there's this high level of integrity. Yeah. And, and if, if there was any permanent damage done to the client, she would could have been held responsible. Yes. And and all the elders, men and women, even though they were not the focus of the group, as I've had dinners with a lot of people and I'm connected in these worlds. Everybody who's been uh, in this world, you you know, very savvy about the use of psychedelics. Everybody talks about the risks and the dangers and that they know someone who, whose life has been changed in a way that's not positive Uh or who had to be hospitalized later. I mean, everyone has a very, very uh, unhappy story. So we know that yes, these medicines are very safe and there are still um damage there's damage still can happen but yeah nothing i mean damage happens from tylenol so there is always a risk yeah i um i think i told you years ago that i i was very good friends with one of the early early psychedelic researchers someone who would probably be in his mid-90s if we were alive now. Um, And at the time I knew him, he was being uh, harassed or sued by the parent of somebody who was one of his uh, experimental subjects 30 or 40 years earlier. Yes. Uh, uh, So I know these things. That's why I asked about the dangers. And that same person told me, and I know this to be the case, with some of the uh, researchers, there are contraindications that some people um, are not eligible <laughs> to be. That's correct. And is that also the case in the underground? Are there people yes, they would say, no, you shouldn't do this? Yes. And I have to say, these women do extensive, med- they take extensive medical histories and they consult mm. with their medical consultants. And um and they know that people lie about their past yeah. histories, and they really delve into 
um, what medicines have you ever used? You know, because if you just ask once, have you ever been hospitalized for a psychiatric reason? Anyone can just say no, but they they ask in lots of other ways to get the whole story. So if there's a history of of bipolar mania or um or schizophrenia, it's it's not recommended. And and not only if, if from what I understand by history, they don't only mean the, the uh, potential client, the, the person, but family history. That that has to be looked at too, especially yeah. with the history of bipolar. Yeah. Yeah, the risk of a manic psychotic break is very real and uh, not easy to come back from. Let's so there are real risks. Good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you looked into that um, because it's, it's an obvious subject to, to be uh, or question to be raised. But let's shift to the other way. The, um, the assumption that we're going by in this in this conversation is that there are spiritual value to be had from these experiences how would you describe other than the what you discussed earlier about research findings uh, on trauma and uh, people with terminal cancer and all that on a spiritual level on a level of personal transformation um what were the what is the common discovery what is the common experience that people have that make you enthusiastic about the use of of the medicines right it's true i am enthusiastic i have to be careful not to be too enthusiastic <laughs> um you know there's a there's research done from two sources one is people who have, this is unrelated to entheogens, people who have spontaneous yes. spiritual experiences. And this this one set of researchers interviewed, I don't know, 50 people who reported spontaneous spiritual experiences. Mm -hmm. And then the amazing uh, research um, event was that they followed them up 10 years later and interviewed them again. And they found that the changes they reported 10 years previously had had were still the same. And they were changes in values. People became more oriented toward humanistic kinds of um, compassionate, charitable kinds of things. They weren't so materialistic. They weren't so interested in fame. They were more interested in relationships and helping others and so it's a real shift in values and priorities in life mm. as a result of a spontaneous um, spiritual opening. The other, the other time, this exact same thing, it's really a conversion experience. William James talked about conversion experiences. Mm. But the whole personality shifts. The other way this happen is, happens is with a near-death experience. You know, and there's, you know, all the hype about going through a tunnel and the light and all that but the people come out transformed. And that is very similar to what happens with a psychedelic experience, a full-blown uh, psychedelic experience, is that people shift in their priorities in life and they change their lives. I mean, some of the women said, if I'm working with someone and they're not changing their life, I don't see them anymore. Uh -huh. I stop, or if they're wanting to come in too often and they're not doing the work in their lives. I, oh, say something more about that. Well, you know, if they're, if, if, so the, the women are looking for transform, transform them changes in the person's life. Um, that they're no longer stuck in the way that they were before, that they're able to do more with their lives and, 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 be more of service in the world, that mm. there's kind of a larger viewpoint about uh, how can I participate in a way that's helpful. So mm -hmm. one one of the, this is the, the woman I call the el eldest of the elders. She talked about it. Let me see if I can find her quote. Um, well, I can't find it exactly. You would think I'd be able to find it. I have it right here. That's okay. Paraphr no, okay. no, I got it. I got it. She said, this is her description. We are responsible for our intentions and our choices. This is the quality of 
consciousness that they're looking for to emerge after a journey. We are responsible for our intentions and our choices, responsible to ourselves and to humanity. That's a bigger view. You, you can see how much bigger this is and, and that it's a spiritual relationship to the world, whether, whether through the environment, working to protect the environment or working with people in some way. There's a bigger world that these people want to participate in. And that's much bigger than the studies that look at symptom reduction. Mm. Um, I'm reminded of something Houston Smith once said about psychedelics, which is what he was interested is uh, less altered states than altered traits. Right. It's a wonderful quote. Yeah. And and that's very that's kind of what you're alluding to here. Um, in the in the uh, analogous context of traditional spiritual uh, lineages and uh, well spiritual uh, communities and traditions, where uh, practices and methods and disciplines are concerned, uh, there's something very similar. There's a, a framework of understanding in which spiritual experience fits and are explained and the kind of personal transformation people are expected to have. Do, do the people you are interviewing in this world, and I, let me say that the the people doing the research in the laboratories at Hopkins and NYU and everywhere else, they share a kind of context, you know, the context of modern psychology or, or therapeutic uh, uh, values. Uh, in the spiritual context, it's, it's different. Do the, the women you uh, interviewed, is there a, a philosophical or theological or spiritual understanding that they have in common in, in with, that frames what they're doing and what they experience uh, fits into. Am I, am I being clear? Yeah. They, you know, they have different um, experiences in, in their training. Mm. So a, a one or two, trained with a, a shaman in, in Peru. So that has its own cosmology right. that's different from a, a Western world. But what they all have in common is the sense in their bones, I mean, the real intuitive, somatically experienced perception of a, a, a non-material world that interpenetrates the material world. So it's it's exactly like William James' quote, that there's another world, an unseen world that's present. And in a way, these women live in both worlds. Interesting. And I would say that they would all agree to that and have that in common. Now, that leads to a question that um, uh, when I told somebody we both know uh, I was going to interview you, he said, Ask her this. So this is a question from the audience, <laughs> even though we're not live. During the first wave of interest in psychedelics for self-actualization during back in the day, uh, people generally uh, followed the interpretation promoted by Houston Smith, Alan Watts, Aldous Huxley, people like that that uh, came to be known as perennialism or the perennialist philosophy or interpretation. He goes on to say that today, people who are experimenting uh, on with the medicine seem to be mo mostly focused on Native American interpretations. Is that how you see it, Rachel? No. Okay. No. <laughs> I Not mean, I interviewed two Native American women. So, yes, I mean, they grew up in that context. Another woman uh, apprenticed with a, a Native American who, who she she was adopted by a grandfather. One woman trained with shamans from Southeast Asia. Very different. 
Uh, and others come from, you know, some trained with Stan Groff, a psychiatrist who's done a lot, a lot of work in this area, did some of the original research in the 60s. Um, so they have a, 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 a different, there's a different range. But I would not say that Native American thought dominates. Uh huh. It's there's really a range, but 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 what is in common is uh, an openness to a more subtle realm of existence. And that would be very consistent with the perennial uh, view of uh, the commonalities of of mystical or spiritual experience. Yes, but I also have to say, you know, <laughs> spent a lot of time with these women. And they are not very linear. <laughs> mm. Really, you know, there was one one academic who was, of course, very linear. But the rest of them, I, I, I'm a, you know, I've been interviewing in in therapy sessions for you know my whole life. I'm not a bad interviewer. I would sometimes have trouble following them because uh. they would be all over the place, and they do not think conceptually. So if you tried to talk to them about the perennial philosophy. Yeah. You wouldn't get very far. Well, they may not very, be conscious of it, but they right. But yeah. they haven't. They haven't done that kind of reading. They don't think in those ways. Got it. So they're very experiential. Um, one section of your book is uh, of particular interest to those of us who are, however reluctantly, aging, and uh, that's. <laughs> um, the one called Practice for Death and Dying. Tell us about that and how the use of the entheogens fits in, what has been learned, and what might be of value for those of us who may be facing death and dying someday. So maybe you have an alternative. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I I think, you know, when I talked about there's generally a, a point in a ceremony where surrender is called for, I think that's part of the practice of of dying. You know, there's the phrase, you know, to die before you die. I, mm -hmm. I think it's engraved in, in that in a monastery. Um, and I think that's part of what that surrender means. And so in that sense, it's a it's a practice. But it's a shift in a worldview because there's a, a there's an experience of crossing that boundary. So people often report communication with people who have died. Hmm. A lot of times, people will talk about a friend who suicide who was a suicide, and they were able to talk to them and see that they were doing well. I mean, there's a real crossing of that boundary and entering into that life after life mm. world. And so people have less fear of dying and uh. Uh, sort of a, a more kind of an attitude of, well, this is another journey, another trip, so to yeah. speak. And, yeah. and I can go with the changes that are happening. And I have not just faith or belief, but uh, I've been here before. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I said I had a difficult MDMA journey, it's because it was, I sort of went to an ayahuasca realm and it was very much about dying, huh. which ayahuasca is often about dying. It's like, oh God, this again. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, and um, so I had a very powerful experience and a message about dying. And it was very um, supportive and reassuring that just came through that experience. Yeah. yeah. So, um, are you at all concerned now that your book is out and you're doing interviews with people like me that you're going to be inundated with a request to uh, introduce people to these women uh, so they can have their guidance? Well, of course, I'm sworn to secrecy. I use pseudonyms throughout the book. You know, after the ayahuasca book, I did get interviews. I mean, interviews. I got emails asking me, you know, where can I get some? So <laughs> um, <laughs> I've developed a callus about these kinds of questions. And, you know, now I'm six years older, so I'm even more calloused. <laughs> and that's not an appropriate question for me. Of course, I'm sworn to 
confidentiality. Yeah. But people have to find, they have to be on their own journey and find their own pathway. And I'm neither a drug dealer nor a drug matchmaker. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So listeners, leave Rachel alone. Find your own guide. Exactly. <laughs> but you know, I, I, there were a couple of chapters in the book that that did not represent the women I interviewed, oh. and and I really say this in the book that when I wrote about the chapter on integration, which I brilliantly named "What the Hell is Integration Anyway?" Um, I'm writing as a psychologist. I'm writing as a therapist, and what does that mean to? What do you do after the ceremony has always mm-hmm. been my focus and my question. And what does integration look like? And it's it's we don't really know. We know so much. We know so much less than we're willing to admit. And I actually I know we're coming to the end of our time, but you know, not only does our Western culture not have a place for these women priestesses, but we don't know a lot about these other states of consciousness. Right that they happen to know a lot about in Eastern religions, whether it's Hinduism or Tibetan Buddhism. And people travel in some of those realms. And there's enormous nuance in different states and and the capacity for teachers, spiritual teachers, to be able to recognize where someone is. And could you speak to that? Because we're in the West, we're kind of a jumble. It's an altered state. It's an expanded state. Yeah. We're not very subtle about this. And isn't that uh, kind of part of the history of all this? I mean, look at, you know, isn't back in the 60s when uh, Richard Alpert and uh, Timothy Leary uh, got in trouble at Harvard for letting LSD escape the laboratory? Um, eventually, Richard Alpert went to India to, to answer these very questions and came back as Ram Dass and was, you know, a major part of a spiritual revolution that, of course, I, I have written about a lot. And I, I guess that process continues, you know, of, of understanding mystical experiences and higher consciousness. And to the extent that um, entheogens fit into the uh, the overall picture of you know different paths and different uh, uh, routes to expansion of consciousness. I guess the the on, it's an ongoing investigation that in with respect, has been going on in the West now for for half a century, but in the case of entheogens was suspended for a few decades. And yeah. now, now that's back in the equation again. So onward we go. Any last words for our listeners, Rachel? What would what would you hope for them to get out of the book? Well, I, I hope they what they learn is that uh that it takes years and years to really l- learn the wisdom of how to sit with someone who's in an expanded state, who's on a journey. And that it's who they are um, and not what they say exactly. It's not like there's one special thing to say at any moment, but they sit with their own essence. And um, to whatever extent they know the territory based on their own healing and experiences of journeys. And that takes years to develop. So I, I hope people are willing to really spend that time and find mentors. Very good. Thank you, Rachel. Listeners, uh, again, Rachel Harris's book is called Swimming in the Sacred, Wisdom from the Psychedelic Underground, published by New World Library, who publishes many of the guests I end up with on this show. Um, Rachel, thanks for being with us. Um, It's always a pleasure to chat with you. And uh, Good luck with the book, and we'll see you next time. Listeners, please uh, subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss a show. And my numbers go up. (laughs) Tell your friends about us. Email me with suggestions. Uh, Check out my website. Get on my mailing list um, and uh, stay in touch. 
and thanks for listening. See you next time. Victoria Moran. Since we launched the Main Street Vegan podcast back in 2012, lots more people have discovered the way that moving in a vegan direction can infuse our lives with vitality, spirituality, and compassion. My guests are experts on every aspect of making this work in your real life and our real world. Join us for Main Street Vegan here on mindbodyspirit.fm.